welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Many have said you don't need to know your birthday to know you're alive, but you do have to be born. Is your relationship with Christ rooted in truth, including the truth of his authority? Lead teacher Jeff Norris begins the series Miracles of Jesus with this sermon entitled The Authority of Christ, which covers Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. As a parent, there have been many times, more than I can count, where I eventually get to a point where I don't have the energy, I don't have the bandwidth, I'm just so exhausted, I just can't explain one more time why I'm giving the directive that I'm giving to my child. And so the only thing that I can say is because I'm your authority, that's why. Or as as it usually comes out, because I said so, which means I'm your authority. Just do what I tell you. I don't don't have the strength to explain again, here's why. If you do this, then this will happen and this will happen. And if you don't, this will happen. Just know I'm your authority. Sometimes there's those moments where uh, you don't have even the strength to say, because I said so, and you just give the, I'm your authority look. You know, you just give the stare. Like, really? You're really gonna ask me why on this right now? Just do it. And so maybe it's because of just that simple interaction that we have. If you're a parent, you know you've been there before. If you're not a parent, uh, you maybe experienced that as a child with your parents. And, and you can identify, and maybe it's just that one little experience that causes us to associate negativity with the word authority. How does that word hit you? When you hear the word authority, what do you think? What do you feel? Is it generally positive or negative? I think for most of us, it's probably negative. And for some of us, I wanna be sensitive to this, for some of us, it's negative because we have been recipients at some time in our past, maybe even in our present where someone with authority has abused us. And I want, I want to acknowledge that, know that, uh, that you have a place here. We would love to enter into that with you if you'd be in a place where, uh, where you would invite us into that and help us, uh, let us help you come alongside beside you in that. But for most of us, for most of us, and I would just even say for all of us, kind of at the core of why the word authority carries with it a negative connotation is because it presses against the very fabric of our nature, which clamors for autonomy. We want to self-rule. We want to embrace this dream of individuality to say that I am my own authority. I mean, this is what was on display even in the garden when Adam and Eve ultimately were saying, uh, yes, you're our authority, God, but We think we can be our own authority. We think that we can have our own way, that we know better. If you have a teenager in your home, you know that this is a common reality that you're dealing with on a a daily basis, that uh, your teenager is probably at some level, maybe increasingly so, expressing their autonomy. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I know what to do. And even though we are quick to blame that on the hormones of a teenager, it's certainly more than that. It's the fabric of all of our hearts because of what sin has done to us. That we just want to be a people that say, I got it. I got this. I don't need 
your authority. But what if there were an authority, an authority figure who exists, who never abuses his power, ever? What if there were an authority figure who always, always gave us what we needed, whether it's we realize what, it's, what we needed or not? What if there were an authority figure who was always doing what helps us? And it may feel like hurt sometimes, but it's ultimately God helping us, giving us what's good for us. What if there were an authority figure who was able to see through all the peripheral, all the masks that we put up, and to see through all of that straight to the heart of the matter of our gross inability to self-rule and instead gives us the opportunity to experience immeasurable peace in the sanctum of his rule and his reign. And, and what if there were an authority figure, a God, who actually created this concept of freedom and the more that we get to know him, the more we begin to understand and realize that that freedom is not experienced in the modern expression of self-rule and individualism, but actually it's experienced in submitting to the good rule, the benevolent rule and reign of him. It almost sounds too good to be true because our life experience says that that's never, all of those things can't be true at once. But it is real and it is realized in the person of Jesus. And if you follow Christ, you, you would say with me, yes, I've experienced that to be true, that he is those things. You see, Jesus is, he is the authority that humanity longs for. He is the authority that humanity needs, but he's also the authority that we have seen time and time again, he's the authority that humanity so often misunderstands. Where we're headed in, in the coming weeks, that's gonna lead us up until Holy Week, is we're gonna be in this series called The Miracles of Jesus, and we're gonna be in the book of Mark. We're not gonna be reading every verse of the book of Mark, but we're gonna be hitting some of the significant miracles that Mark records for us. And so here's what I wanna invite you to do. Even though we're not gonna be walking through every verse of the gospel of Mark, I want you to. Uh, I wanna encourage you to be reading through the book of Mark during these five weeks that we go into this, uh, this Miracles of Jesus series. In your bulletin, you got a, you got a bookmark. And on the back of that bookmark is a, is a reading plan that takes you through Mark chapter 10, which is where this series is gonna go through. It's gonna go through Mark chapter 10. However, Mark has 16 chapters. So here's what I'd like for you to do. Don't stop at the end of this plan because on Palm Sunday and on Easter Sunday, we're gonna be teaching out of Mark as well. The, the accounts that Mark records of us of, the, of Holy Week. Uh, and so... Uh, read the whole book of Mark. And with that, I have a gift that I wanna make available to some of you. Uh, if you would consider yourself to be new at perimeter, and I'm gonna let you define what new means, okay? Um, if you've been here five years, but you still consider yourself new, then okay, fine, you're new. Um, but if you consider yourself new at perimeter, we wanna gift you this, which is a it's what it is, it's the, the Gospel According to Mark Journal Bible. 
On the right-hand side of each page is the, is the scripture of Mark. And on the left-hand side of each page is the scripture of Mark. <laughs> on the right-hand side is uh, open space for you to write. Uh, write down your questions, your thoughts, draw pictures, whatever you want to do with that. Totally up to you. But if you consider yourself new and or you're a first-time visitor with us today, or I'm going to give you three categories. Or if you would say, I'm investigating Christianity. I'm not sure that I'm a believer, but I'm here. I'm intrigued by what this whole Christianity thing is. So if you're new to the church, a first-time visitor, or investigating the faith, we want to give you a copy of this. On your way out today, go by our Start Here counters. Ask for one of these. We'd be glad to hand you one and gift you with that. If you're a member at Perimeter and you've been here for a while, um, I love you. Uh, but we don't have one for you. You'll have to use your Bible that you have. You can buy these in the bookstore as well um, if you don't fit into one of those three categories. I love these, by the way. I have the whole New Testament set and it's something I, used often, I use often in my own personal study. So um, as we get into the book of Mark, I wanna give you just a few highlights before we jump in to our text for the day. Uh, Mark is widely accepted as the first gospel that was written. So you have four gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And of those four accounts of the life and the work, and the ministry of Jesus, uh, Mark is considered to be the very first one. And, and many scholars believe that Matthew and Luke were actually using the book of Mark, the gospel account of Mark, uh, for kind of their launching pad for their gospel accounts. Um, gospel, why, why do we use the phrase gospel to explain these these books, these kind of, some, kind of bios, if you will, of Jesus. And the reason we use gospel is because gospel literally means good news. So these are the accounts of the good news of Jesus, the good news of his life, of his work and ministry, of his death, of his resurrection. And we're not told every facet of his life. We're given highlights, particularly most of his life until his ministry at the age of 30. We don't know much about but these four gospel accounts really zoom in on those three years of his ministry and really zoom in on his last week on this earth that we commonly call Holy Week or Passion Week. Another reason that the word gospel is used to say gospel of Mark is because gospel was understood in that day to also mean a historical changing event. Okay, that wasn't necessarily related with religion. For example, when the Emperor Augustus, the Roman Emperor Augustus was born, it was described in the history books as a gospel event. And so we use that word, they used that word because it meant good news and it meant something that changes history has occurred in the birth and in the life and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so that's why gospel is used to describe these books of the Bible. Uh, Mark himself is sometimes referred to in scripture, in the book of Acts, in other places in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul and Peter. Sometimes he's called Mark, sometimes he's called John Mark, and sometimes he's just called John. And apparently there were only so many names that went around in that day and time. But it'll confuse you, but that's all the same person. And it's interesting with Mark. Mark was a co-laborer uh, with Paul. He went with Paul on his first missionary journey. Uh, but then uh, it was Paul and Barnabas and Mark. And for what, for some reasons we don't know, Mark decided to leave and go home. And that did not sit well with Paul. 
Paul and Barnabas got actually into an argument about it. And Barnabas and Mark were cousins. And so Barnabas and Paul actually separated. And there was this tiff that was going on there for a while to show that even the greatest of apostles struggle. But we find out later on in Paul's writings as he's at the end of his ministry, Mark is a dear friend yet again. They had reconciled with one another and Paul adored Mark. And Peter, Peter was a close companion with Mark. So close, in fact, that many, many scholars believe that in some ways we could even indirectly say that the gospel of Mark is is the gospel of Peter, that Mark, what he was doing is he was taking the eyewitness accounts of Peter and putting them down into this account that we have now that we know as the gospel of Mark. So anyway, this was an early follower of Jesus who most likely followed Jesus as one of his disciples, just not one of the 12, but a contemporary of the apostles. So as we think about getting into this book, we're going to be looking at, as I mentioned, some different miracles. And so I'm not going to be reading uh, much of anything today in chapter one. Again, I want you to read that on your own. Where we're going to pick up this morning is with the story of when Jesus performed the miracle of healing a paralytic. And that starts in chapter two, verse one. So let's read there. It says this. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home Let me just pause quickly and give a quick thought on this. You might, if you know your Bible, you might go, well, I didn't think Jesus had a home. Jesus even said the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he certainly seemed nomadic in the ways that he would just do his ministry around Galilee and then Judea and then Jerusalem. So you go to, so he went home and went to his home. What does that mean? Well, uh, without going into it in too much detail, it could mean a number of things. We don't really know. It could mean that he was staying at Peter's house. We do know that Peter's house was in Capernaum. Capernaum, by the way, is a, is a little fishing village, uh, was a little fishing, vi- fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so maybe he was staying with Peter. Uh, you know, we don't know. Uh, many believe that, and this might be where I lean, but it's just a guess that uh, strong indication that, that, uh, that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, passed away when Jesus was still a boy. And so after passing, uh, there are indications that Mary moved from Nazareth to Capernaum and that her house was in Capernaum. And so when it says that Jesus was at home, perhaps it means he's in his mother's house, in Mary's house. It could also mean that someone who was wealthy of means, who loved Jesus and his ministry, uh, gave him a place to to operate out of, to live out of in Capernaum, although I would not lean towards that because Jesus himself said, I have nowhere to lay my head. Whatever the case, here's the point. Capernaum was Jesus's ministry headquarters in many ways. It was often that he was coming back to Capernaum. It was often that he was preaching in the synagogue there at Capernaum. And so this little fishing village uh, had a lot of activity with Jesus and his followers. And it says this in verse two, many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So we're going to talk about the authority of Jesus. When we think about Uh, the miracles of Jesus, we're going to zoom in in this series specifically on how these miracles reveal to us his authority, that he has authority over all things, over us and over all creation. 
And so three things I want you to take away from this morning. I wanna go ahead and give you the first one based on what we've read already is that Jesus is showing us his authority in his preaching. Okay, I wanna take us back to a couple of verses in chapter one that I didn't read. If you go back to chapter one, verse 21, it says this, and they went into Capernaum, there they are again, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one, here it is, who had authority and not as the scribes. I mean, Jesus is showing up on the scene and he is opening the Old Testament scriptures. And I want to make sure you understand that the scriptures for them in that day was not the Bible we have before us now. The New Testament had not been developed yet. It would be quite some time before that happened. But they had the Old Testament scriptures, the the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the poets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the history books, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, those. They also had the prophets. And so Jesus was opening the scriptures. He was opening the scrolls of the scriptures. And undoubtedly, one of the things that he was doing as he was teaching the Old Testament scriptures to them is that he was helping them see, revealing to them that all of it was pointing to him, that he was the fulfillment of these scriptures. Even of the law, the Mosaic law, the Levitical law, it's all pointing to being fulfilled in him. The prophets, the ones that they were, uh, that they were saying, hey, there's one coming, there's one coming, there's one coming. He's revealing himself as the answer to these Old Testament scriptures. And, and listen, we, we love us some good preaching, don't we? We, we actually are guilty and is, in this day and age of elevating preachers uh, to a place that we should never be. We will actually choose churches based on what preacher entertains us the most or keep, keeps us engaged the most and where God's word fits into that might be way down, down the, the spectrum. But I wonder if it was, same back, if it was the same back then. I don't, I don't know. Just wondering here. What if, what if you had scribes who would come into the synagogue and you, and you had Rabbi Joe and Rabbi Joe, man, everybody loved Rabbi Joe. And when he would open the Old Testament scriptures, say, hey, I'm going to synagogue today because when he opens the scrolls, man, it's good. And then maybe the next Saturday, which was their Sabbath day, maybe it was the next Saturday. He says, oh, well, uh, Rabbi Jim is, uh, he's going to be the one opening the scrolls today. I don't know. He's, he just doesn't, he just doesn't speak it like I like it. Maybe it was like that. I don't know. The human heart has been the same from the beginning, right? We still, we keep doing these things. Even, even Paul had to correct this in 1 Corinthians where he says, some of you say I follow Peter and some of you say I follow Paul and some of you say I follow Apollos, right? Because we just want to follow these people that, that really wow us with their ability to communicate. But the whole thing is about Jesus. And so Jesus shows up onto the scene and it's him, it's the son of God and he's opening the scrolls and it's like nothing they've ever seen. He's preaching with authority, revealing things to them that they just go, wow. Can you imagine what that would have been like? He says that this is part of how his kingdom even comes. If you look at verse 38 in chapter one, it says this, and he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out, the way that my kingdom comes. He said earlier in, in chapter one as well, he said, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Here's how the kingdom of God comes. It comes through the preaching of the word and the demonstration of the word. 
of the gospel of the good news. And so Jesus is doing that. And he has unmatched authority in his preaching. And then look what happens. Verse three of chapter two. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Could have been more than just four men. And the paralytic, we don't know. It says they came. So it may have been a whole host of people. But there were four men who were carrying this paralyzed man. And when they, could know, when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they laid down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, I just, I just wanna stop for a second. Uh, sometimes these gospel accounts are moving too quick for me. Now, one of the favorite words of Mark in the gospel of Mark, as you read through it, is he keeps using the word immediately over and over and over again. He's trying to, he's trying to rush us through the story, not so that we wouldn't get the points, but he's trying to help us see the quickness to which the kingdom of God was coming and the ways in which Jesus was ushering in all kinds of reality in this broken world through his, through his, king, his kingship, his kingdom. But sometimes I kind of wish that they would just give us a little more detail because did you hear what they said, what he said, what they did? They dug through the roof. Okay, for whatever reason in my mind, I've always considered this story is that they just dug a little hole and maybe they just drop a note down that says, hey, we're up here, can you let us in kind of thing? We just don't wanna, we don't make a big mess here, but just enough to, you know, give me a sticky note, you know, that kind of thing. I don't know why I thought of it that way because it's clear in the text that what they did is that they went up onto this roof that would have been made of mud and thatch and leaves and sticks and they dug through it a man-sized hole, okay? Not a man-sized hole that can do a pencil like in the, in the swimming pool, but like he's laying flat, perpendicular, horizontal, and they dig through that. And here's the other thing. If this were Mary's house or Peter's house or someone's house that is not Jesus's, Jesus doesn't stop them. It's like, hey, hey, oh, that's my roof. And he doesn't stop him. Mud is falling all over people's heads. And he just keeps teaching. And he lets them do what they're doing. And we don't even know how they got up there. Some of these houses, if they were a little nicer, had stairwells that led up to the roof where they would hang their clothes to dry and that kind of thing. But maybe, they, maybe this one didn't have it. Maybe they had to climb one two doors down and then go on the rooftops over to where they were. We don't know, but the point is this. These men were dead set on getting their friend, their brother, whoever it was, to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus didn't stop them. Well, look what happens in verse five. And when Jesus saw their faith, interesting, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, this is when the record screeches to a halt. Er, what? That's not expected. What we're expecting to read there is that he saw the great uh, work that they did, the extent that they went to to get this friend to the feet of Jesus. And so he says, wow, be healed. But he doesn't say that. In fact, he says something that confuses us even more. He says when he, saws, when he sees their faith. Now we know from the rest of scripture, we know from Jesus' teaching, the rest of Jesus' teaching that, that we cannot express saving faith for someone else. It has to be your own faith. So he's not, he's not saying that it's just their faith alone that he's able to say to this man, your sins are forgiving, forgiven. Uh, it was him as well. This, this paralytic was demonstrating faith in Jesus to where Jesus seeing his heart, knowing his heart could say, 
He trusts me. He trusts me as the Lord of all creation. But he says something in that moment that is profound because he knows that the scribes who are in the room with their arms crossed trying to figure out who this Jesus is, he knows how they're gonna take this. He knows that when he says your sins are forgiven, that they're gonna gasp and they're gonna question, what is this man saying? Only God can forgive sins. And that's exactly what they think. They don't even say it. Look at this. Verse six, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Just a little side note. Uh, if I were thinking a thought and then the man in the room answered my thought, I might have a hint that this is more than just an average Joe in the room who's pretending to be something that he's not. Anyway, verse nine. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Second thing I want you to take away this morning is that we see Jesus' authority in his preaching, but we also see his authority in his ability to forgive sins and his forgiving of the paralytic. There's something that he said, and it was in verse 10, that you and I probably missed because we're not first century Jews. Listen to this, verse 10, he says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He didn't say so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins. He says, son of man. This is actually one of Jesus's favorite phrases to refer to himself. And if we had first century Jewish ears, we would have immediately perked up and we would have immediately thought of the book of Daniel. And we would have probably thought specifically of Daniel chapter seven. I mean, the scribes in the room were like, whoa, whoa, whoa he's going Daniel seven on us. Can he do that? Listen to what Daniel 7 says. When he says, so that you may know the son of man has authority to forgive sins. Here's the verses ringing in their ears because they knew their Old Testament well. It says this, verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And listen to this. And to him, the son of man was given dominion. That's authority. That's power, that's sovereignty, that's realm. Was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And this is, by the way, this is Daniel prophesying about the coming Messiah. Given a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. They would have thought of this text and gone, hold up. He said, your sins are forgiven. And then he went all the way to say that he's the son of man. Who does this guy think he is? 
He's the long-awaited king to come that has everlasting dominion over the kingdom and all authority on heaven and earth. This, this, this carpenter from Nazareth, really? Isn't he the son of Joseph and Mary? Who does he think he is? And so here's what Jesus says to him. He says, what do you think is easier? For me to say your sins are forgiven? How would we know? Of course, that's the easier thing to say. Hey, your sins are forgiven. I could walk up to you and say, your sins are forgiven. And you would go, hey, how about not being our pastor anymore? That's weird. <laughs> you don't have that power. But I could say that and you wouldn't know if it's true or not. You'd be like, oh, okay. But Jesus says this, so that you will know that what I say has authority. And that when I say your sins are forgiven, it's true. Here's what I'll do. I'll say the harder thing where I have to prove right here in front of you that my word has authority. So paralytic, take up your mat, walk, go home. And it happens. And what he's demonstrating there in that moment is he's saying, I am the one who is king and Lord over all. I am the authority of all creation. I am God. I'm God in the flesh. I am the son of God. I am the one for whom your souls long for and for whom you were made. In me and in me alone will you find life. And the scribes had a choice at this point. They could either believe that, yes, this is God in the flesh. This is the son of God, the long-awaited Messiah. We need to believe upon him or... They had a choice to reject him and to see him only as, a, as one who pretends to be something that he's not. And sadly, they chose the latter. How did Jesus, how does he even have the right to forgive sins? You know, this is pre-cross. This story is happening significant chunk of time before Jesus goes to the cross, but Jesus is able to prematurely apply his finished work to the heart of this paralytic because he knows what's coming. God is outside of space and time. This is how Old Testament believers were saved, by the way. It wasn't through their works. It was by grace, through faith, and in the coming Messiah, the one who would rescue them. And so there's this, this Jesus who says your sins are forgiven. How? On what basis? On the basis that he will live the perfect life that you and I and every human that's ever walked the face of the earth other than him cannot live. Achieving the standard of the law that none of us in all of history can or will achieve. And then dying for us the death that every single one of us should die, the very wrath of God being poured out on us because of our sin. And the only one who ever lived who didn't deserve the wrath of God actually went willingly and even joyfully, as the scriptures say, to the cross to receive a punishment that was not his, but was ours so that he could then offer to us a ridiculous offer of grace to say that it's only through my sacrifice for you, my perfect substitution for you as the lamb of God slain in your place that you could have forgiveness of sins so that we begin to understand that our greatest need is not anything around us. Our greatest need is to be rescued from what's broken in us. Sin has marred our hearts first and foremost, and Jesus has rescued us through his death and ultimately his resurrection. The very thing that we would never have power to do, the penalty of sin itself, death, he defeated for us. 
so that through faith in him, we too may not die. Sure, we will die physically, but we will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. And then when he returns to make all things new, we will be reunited with our bodies, made perfect and glorious in his sight. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus. And that's why he is the only one, the only one who can forgive sins. One last thing I'll mention that we see in this text about Jesus's authority is we see his authority demonstrated in his healing. He does end up healing this man. I wanna be abundantly clear about something. Please don't hear me say that in Jesus, you will receive your healing if you believe hard enough. And Jesus, you will receive your healing on this side of heaven. In fact, for most of us, we don't experience that healing until, until we're with Jesus. He gives us bits and pieces here and we're to pray for it and ask for it and believe him for it. And he'll give us little taste of the kingdom to come, little foretaste of what's coming and he'll heal here and he'll heal there. But oftentimes he doesn't. And we often learn more about him and his character and his goodness as we wait than we do even in the healing. But he is a God who heals. But I want you to see the window that God, that Jesus gives us into the nature of his kingdom. First and foremost, what healing was Jesus about? First and foremost, he was about the healing of this man's wayward soul. The kingdom of God is first concerned with healing hearts that have been wrecked by sin. But coming right behind that, the kingdom of God is also deeply concerned with the whole human experience being concerned with all the things that are broken in our world and all the ways that God's, kingdoms need, God's kingdom needs to come and flourish among us, first and foremost in us as we are forgiven of our sins and made reconciled and made new in Christ, but also in all of our experience around us and the ways in which we wanna see God bring newness of his kingdom to bear around us. You know, one of the reasons that there were many people who left the evangelical church in the latter half of the 20th century is because we became a church fixated on only proclaiming the gospel to hearts and ignoring the needs of individuals physically and emotionally. And what people began to say to the church is if all you're concerned about is me getting my fire insurance, but you're ignoring what I'm dealing with here right now today, then I'm not sure I want your gospel. The kingdom of God is both. It's the proclamation of the word to the hearts of the people, but it's also the demonstration of that word and that truth in our full, whole human experience. Two things I want you to get, walk away with today. First one is this. I want you to fight against the modern emphasis on the acceptance of Christ. You may go, what? What does he mean by that? Let me give you the second one, then I'll explain. I want you to fight for the biblical emphasis on the authority of Christ. You know, we think it modern church history, we think about it, what I just mentioned about the church in the 20th century. There's a phrase that started being used in the latter half, the very end actually of the 19th century and then into the 20th century that I think in some ways has misled God's people. And it was this whole phraseology that really kind of exploded in the mid 20th century of accepting Christ 
or maybe you've heard it as praying to receive Christ. I'm not bashing this all together because many of us, maybe even perhaps most of us, this is how we came to faith. It's how I came to faith. Uh, and so God uses it. However, I do think at the, at the fundamental level, it's misleading because it's not the biblical language. When we talk, when we say things like, um, you know, uh, do you accept Christ or I have accepted Christ? Um, it, it's, it's language that almost insinuates that we're doing God a favor. You know, that we're, we're saying to God, hey, God, I've, I've checked you out. And as the authority here, I'm, I'll accept you. And you know, here's the thing, God, I'm going to accept you as long as you don't mess with my life too much. As long as I can kind of keep doing my thing here and doing my thing here, I, you know, but yeah, this whole Lord and Savior Jesus Christ thing, I'm, I'm with it. I've accepted Christ. I, pr I prayed a prayer. But we don't see that biblically. The nature of the kingdom of God that we see presented to us over and over again is not about us accepting Christ. It's about us bowing the knee to the authority of Christ. He's the authority, not us. He's not up there. Jesus is not up there just wringing his hands nervously. Is, is he gonna accept me or not? He's Lord over all creation. He is the he's the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. He is both the tender savior, but he is also the warrior king whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given. And the invitation that we have before us is not to survey God and decide if we want to accept him into this pocket of our lives. It's this invitation into the ability, the great privilege, the incredible joy of being able to say, God, I don't want you to come and just be an accepted thing into my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to have control over everything. I want to bow to your authority at every level, Jesus, because you are king. That's what the message of Christianity is. And we struggle with that. We struggle with that because we like to be the ones who are authority. We're the ones who think I'll determine what's best for me. And let me just be a little bit personal here and a little bit frank. I hope in a room this, with this many people in it and, and with people watching in other venues and online, I think there's probably a lot of us who at some time in our past, we accepted Jesus. We prayed a prayer, but our lives in large part never changed because we never we never surrender to the authority of Christ. To, to walk with Jesus is to not base this whole thing on something that we did back then and kind of keep doing what we're doing. To walk with Jesus is to say, I want to fight every single day for you to be the authority in my life, King Jesus. To change me in every way into your image for me to let go of all the ways in which I seek to find better authority than you and I'm always disappointed. I want to bow to you. Salvation is a one-time experience. You do that and you say, but then every day as we walk with him, that's what we're doing. We're fighting the flesh. We're fighting the temptation of this world to say, Jesus, you're Lord. 
You're the authority. Parents, leading your children into biblical Christianity is not necessarily leading them to pray a prayer of salvation. It may be expressed that way, which is fine. But leading our children into biblical saving faith is leading them to trust Jesus as the ultimate and good authority of their lives. And we could say it this way. We could say that what biblical faith is, biblical faith is demonstrated trust in the authority of Christ over you and over all creation. Is he your authority? Or has it just been maybe a Christian cultural experience for you that you've accepted Christ, but he's really never been your authority? I don't want you to feel fear this morning. I don't want you to feel like I'm trying to scare you. I just, I just want to be true to what the scriptures are teaching us and say, uh, where are you in that? And if you would say, I don't know, I don't know that I've ever submitted to his, to his authority in my life as, as king and Lord over all, then this is the morning to do it. We don't usually have altar calls in Presbyterian church, but I'm this close to doing one. Uh, <laughs> But this is the morning. This is the morning to say, oh Lord, would you be Lord and King, authority over me? I just want to give it all to you. And so we say this at the end of the service, but I'll just remind you once again, uh, we always have people who are here in the front to receive you, to pray for you after the service. And that's also a time where uh, if you feel like, man, this is me, I may be guilty of that whole acceptance thing, but not authority of Jesus thing. And man, come down and talk to our folks here. Let them talk with you. Let them pray for you. We'll have some up in the balcony by the video booth as well. But would you come to Jesus? He is good. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray for our own hearts. We pray for our own hearts to be, to be astonished. Just as the people were there that day when you were preaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And as you preached, that they were astonished by you, O oh Jesus. May we be astonished at who you are. We'd be amazed at what you offer us, that we would be convinced that the freedom and the peace that we so long for is found under your rule and your reign, that we were created for you and we need you. So Lord, even now as we pray and as we are about to sing, would you receive our praises as being from hearts who are declaring to you that you are my Lord, you are my authority, and I worship you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.